0: I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Season 2 of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Clark County, Washington. Clark County is the southernmost county in the state of Washington with a population of over 500,000 residents. It was created by the Provisional Government of the Oregon Territory on August 20, 1845, and at that time covered the entire area of the state. It was the first county established in Washington and was named after William Clark of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. The Donation Land Act of 1850 provided free land for settlers and opened the entire county for land claims. Three years later, the Washington Territory was created from the Oregon Territory with the Columbia River separating the two territories. Vancouver, which is the county seat, was home to Washington's oldest apple tree until it died at age 194. Planted in 1826, this tree is considered the great-grandfather of the Washington State apple industry. Within Clark County is the small and quiet community of Brush Prairie, a safe and idyllic hamlet with just a few thousand residents. In 2002, big city problems arrived on their doorstep and proved to residents that courts of law are not necessarily courts
1: of justice. On Thursday, January 10th, 2002, 35-year-old Brad Johnson and his 23-year-old wife, Sophia, went over to his parents' house to check on his mom. Brad and Sophia had been married for about four months at the time, and Sophia was five months pregnant with their first child. Brad's parents, Richard and Marlene Johnson, lived about five miles away from them and were thrilled that they were going to have their first grandbaby to spoil. Marlene and Sophia were close, And on January 10th, Marlene was supposed to have met Sophia at her house for lunch. Marlene was very late and not answering the phone. So Brad left work and picked up Sophia so they could go to his parents' house together. When they arrived, Marlene's car was not in the driveway. They walked through the house to make sure everything was okay. But when Brad and Sophia walked down to the basement, they found Brad's mother, 58-year-old Marlene Johnson, lying on the basement floor covered in blood. Brad's mother was dead, and he immediately called 911. Detective Sergeant Dave Trimble said that it was quite clearly a homicide, with Marlene having suffered multiple blows to her head and face. She also had defensive wounds on her arms and hands. Bloodied and broken metal fireplace tongs were found nearby, and a bag of groceries had fallen on the floor.
0: However, motive was a problem. A distraught Brad told detectives that he and his wife did not know of any reason someone would want to kill his mother. She had no enemies, had not had any arguments with anyone, and was one of the most caring and friendly people you would ever know. According to police, the family did not report anything missing except Marlene's car, a 1996 Ford Windstar minivan. Police put out a bolo and warned the public that the driver of the vehicle should be considered armed and dangerous. Eventually, the van was recovered nearby in a supermarket parking lot. A couple of days after Marlene's death, a woman named Susan Parker called the Clark County Sheriff's Office and said she knew who killed Marlene Johnson. She went into the station to talk to detectives and told them that on January 10th, she drove her 19-year-old boyfriend, Sean Correa, and his sister to Marlene's home. Ms. Parker said she dropped off Correa and his sister at about 9 a.m. Her boyfriend's sister needed help shampooing the carpet and wanted her brother's help. The job was going to pay $200, and her boyfriend needed the money so he could divorce his wife. Sheriff's investigators brought Correa in for questioning. He told detectives that instead of shampooing the carpet, he sat in the living room while his sister rummaged through the house. After an hour, he heard the garage door opening, and a few minutes later, he heard someone cry out. Correa said he went downstairs to check on his sister and saw her standing over and striking Marlene Johnson with a long object. Investigators then went to interview Sean Correa's sister, Marlene Johnson's daughter-in-law, Sophia Johnson. On the day of the murder, Sophia's version of events that she told police differed significantly from Sean Correa's. As a result,
1: investigators got a court order to tap her phone. So, Kath, what happens is that Sean Correa agrees to have his phone tapped. And while deputies are listening, he calls his sister and he starts trying to elicit incriminating information from her. And she keeps admonishing him, hey, stop talking, stop talking, don't talk on the phone, don't talk on the phone. Our phones could be tapped. So investigators did not get anything substantive from this conversation. No admissions. No admissions. After that, Sophia goes to the sheriff's department and says, hey, by the way, I got this call from my brother, Sean, and I think he may be involved in my mother-in-law's murder. And so she goes through this conversation with the detectives like it was so weird. He called me asking about this and that and the other thing. And she was throwing shade at her brother.
0: Because she probably got spooked by all of his questions. Probably. And in her mind, it was probably the best defense is a good offense. And so she had to go in and talk to
1: them. Exactly. So anyway, so Sophia impugns her brother, tells deputies that she thinks he's the murderer. So during this conversation, Sophia tells the sheriff's investigator that her mother-in-law, Marlene, hid cash in the house that not even Marlene's husband knew about. So she tells this investigator that there's $10,000 hidden somewhere. And she specifically points out two areas that cash is hidden. My belief, although I did not read it anywhere, is that she was sending the signal that this was a robbery, but it wasn't her. She was Marlene's confidant.
0: Well, right. I mean, Marlene trusted her enough to tell her the locations, but didn't trust her husband. Correct. And if the money was gone, even if it was never there in the first place, the detectives would have no way of knowing and assume it was a robbery.
1: Right. It was just the money was gone. Right. Almost one week later, in a January 16, 2002 article in the Colombian newspaper by journalist Stephanie Thompson, it was announced that the two siblings had been arrested for the murder of Marlene Johnson. As we said previously, Sophia was 23 and her brother Sean Correa was 19 at the time of his arrest. They were both arrested on suspicion of first-degree murder, robbery, and burglary. The siblings were held on $500,000 bail each. A public defender was appointed for Sean Correa, but Judge Barbara Johnson told Sophia that she did not qualify for court-appointed counsel and needed to hire one. Sophia told the judge that her husband and father-in-law, Marlene's husband, were working on hiring an attorney for her, but she did not know if they had hired one yet. That day, Sophia Johnson was formally charged with second-degree murder but her brother was not yet charged. In addition to the second-degree murder charge, the Colombian newspaper reported that Sophia was also facing charges of first-degree theft and 34 counts of forgery in an unrelated matter. At the time of her mother-in-law's murder, Sophia was being investigated for embezzling $160,000 the prior year from her employer a private company called County Communications in Washougal, Washington. She worked there as an office manager and was suspected of writing checks to herself from the company's account. The charges for theft were filed shortly after the murder charges.
0: And I got to tell you, Kathy, as you know, I have a lot of relatives in the Pacific Northwest. Yep. Washougal is where my aunt and uncle used to have a river house, right? Right, right, right. (laughs) We used to spend our days floating on the river, like in front of the house. It was Awesome! It's such a beautiful area.
1: Okay, so Kat, I remember that in high school you had gone to visit your aunt and uncle, and you—this is not funny, but it's funny—you came home and your entire face was like super scuffed up. And I was like, "What happened?" And I guess I had an ATV. Yeah, that you ran into a fence.
0: And I was my, like, "My cousin Greg had an ATV. I was riding it. Probably shouldn't have let me do it." And as I'm going faster and getting closer to the fence, I could not remember which was the brake and which was the accelerator. And so, of course, you oh. see, accelerator. Right. I went into a barbed wire fence. I still have the scars on my face from it, but I remember my mom wasn't with us. My sister and I had gone up. Yes, I remember getting home. My mom saw my face, and the very first thing she said was, "I'm calling the plastic surgeon." Oh
1: my God. <laughs> Sadly, she never did. Right, exactly. <laughs> I remember your sister warning me, like, "Okay, Kathy's face is screwed up. Don't make fun of her." <laughs> but of course, I saw you, and I was like, "Oh, no, she wasn't." She was like. Oh. <laughs> It's good to have
0: friends when you're all messed up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you remember that. According to journalist Margaret Ellis with The Columbian, at Sophia's arraignment, attorney Tom Phelan asked Superior Court Judge Diane Woolard to reduce Sophia's bail, telling the court that Sophia was six months pregnant and was concerned about her health. Attorney Phelan also added that he was making a courtesy appearance, sometimes known as a what, Kathy? A special appearance. Thank you on Sophia's behalf and may not represent her later. Senior Deputy Prosecutor Mike Kinney opposed the request to reduce bail and told the court he was worried Sophia would flee. In her ruling, Judge Woolard said she was more concerned about the community and upped her bail by $50,000 to include the theft and forgery charges.
1: So now she's at five fifty. dollars Correct.
0: Almost two weeks after Marlene Johnson was killed, on January twenty third, 2002, Journalist Stephanie Thompson reported that the judge appointed Tom Phelan to serve as Sophia's interim attorney and approved the expense of an investigator to study the crime scene. It turns out that Sophia's husband and father-in-law did not hire an attorney for her. Shocker. Big shocker. (laughs) But rather, her husband Brad filed for divorce. In the same article, journalist Thompson revealed that Sophia Johnson had a reputation for bragging about her possessions. Her co said Sophia would talk about having a Barbie doll collection worth two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And Kathy, apparently what she had was this big book of Barbie collectibles and she would page through it every day and go, I have that one. I have that one. And I have that one pointing to like all the most expensive
1: ones. When I read this, like two hundred fifty thousand dollars, I was like, did she own Mattel? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like who has that kind of collection? PJ was my favorite Barbie. I love PJ. Malibu PJ? Malibu PJ. I had a next door neighbor named Tina and she and I would play Barbies on her back porch, but I did not like her dad. He scared me. So if he was home from work, I never went over there. And so (laughs) this one day I go knocking on her door and her dad must've been home early from work. He opens the door and he looks at me. The look is like, hello, Newman. So I'm standing there and I was like, oh, is Tina home? Blah, blah, blah. So he's debating whether he's going to let me go play with his daughter. And he decides... He doesn't say anything. He just holds open the door so I can come into the house. Well, I am so excited that I get to go. I go running to the back door where Tina's playing outside, and I don't realize the screen is shut, and I <laughs> I smash through the screen. <laughs> it totally comes off its hinges, falls out of the patio. I am face down. My knees are bleeding. I start crying, <laughs> and I remember just getting up and running and leaving out the side of their house. <laughs>
0: Oh, you didn't even go back through the house. No, God, You're afraid the dad would nab you. (laughs)
1: Exactly. He was so mad. I could hear him screaming at me as I was running. Oh, my God. Yeah, it gave him all the more reason to hate me. For whatever reason, he already hated me. (laughs) (laughs) In the same article by journalist Stephanie Thompson, where she talked about Sophia's inclination to brag about possessions, Jeff O'Donohue was also interviewed. And this was her boss at County Communications from where she was accused of embezzling $160,000. Mr. O'Donohue said that he and his staff would always say that if Sophia's lips were moving, pretty much that means she's lying.
0: Her lips are moving, her lips are moving, her <laughs> lips are moving. It's a
1: lie, lie, lie. <laughs> I think this podcast can only handle one bad singer. <laughs>
0: I give that back to you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) O'Donohue said that Sophia had worked for him for three years. He had been best friends with her husband, Brad, for 14 years before a fallout over Sophia's alleged embezzlement. When O'Donohue first discovered that Sophia had stolen money from him, he said he thought it was about $8,000, and he tried to give her a break and let her repay the money through paycheck deductions. Sophia had asked him not to call the police because she was worried about being deported back to Guyana. After learning how much money Sophia allegedly stole, O'Donohue fired her and filed a police report.
0: Three weeks after the murder, Superior Court Judge Diane Woolard appointed Teresa Lavallee to represent Sophia on the murder charges to which she had pleaded not guilty. One month later, on March 5, 2002... Clark County prosecutors brought formal charges against Sophia's brother, Sean Correa, in the murder of Marlene Johnson.
1: So, Kath, Sean Correa waived time at the arraignment, meaning they didn't have the normal statutory time within which to charge him. So, like, for example, in California, you have to be arraigned within two court days of your arrest. And so he waived time on the arraignment. Sophia did not. So she was charged and entered a plea and had a bail hearing while Sean was hanging out in jail. So they finally charged him officially with actions related to Marlene's death.
0: So at this hearing, Correa pleaded not guilty to burglary, theft, and rendering criminal assistance after Marlene Johnson's murder. Senior Deputy Prosecutor Tom Duffy told Judge Woollard that he discussed with Correa's attorney the possibility of offering Correa a plea deal in exchange for his testimony against his sister. Several months later, Sean Correa pleaded guilty to accessory after the fact to helping his sister clean up the crime scene and disposing of bloody clothing. He was sentenced to one year in jail and as part of the guilty plea would testify against his sister. Despite these actions, the sheriff's investigators made it very clear that Correa could still be charged with murder.
1: As I said, Sophia did not waive her right to a speedy arraignment, nor did she waive her rights to a speedy trial. Prosecutors decided they didn't have enough time to prepare their case. So what they did is dropped the murder charges against Sophia. When they did this, it automatically eliminated $500,000 of her bail, leaving a bail of $50,000. And by the way, you know who also uh, didn't waive time for a speedy trial? O.J. Simpson. Oh. Yes, exactly. I wonder if he's yet found the murder of Nicole (laughs) and Ron Goldman. (laughs) I can't believe they put on that kind of trial that quickly. Oh, that was a big baller move. Like, honestly. Clank, clank. Clank, clank. Yeah.
0: Okay, Kath, so you mentioned that Sophia's bail was dropped to $50,000 because right now it only included the embezzlement charges. Correct. Sophia was able to come up with $5,000 to pay for her bond. And it actually came from her father, who was living in New York.
1: It wasn't from all the money she stole.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's the Pacific Northwest. It just joined D.B. Cooper's money. I was just going to say, it it flew off
1: a plane. Exactly.
0: (laughs) However, before Sophia could arrange to leave, Judge Woolard upped her bond to $100,000. Not sure why. I did not read that anywhere. Did you see that? No, I'm assuming there had to be
1: a subsequent hearing, but there's nothing in the papers about it.
0: And actually, it wasn't included in the Court of Appeals opinion either, was it? No, it was not. However, Sophia's dad was actually able to give her the extra $5,000, so now she had $10,000 to post for bond. So, Kath, here's what happened. When she was first thinking that she would be able to get out of jail on a $50,000 bail or the $5,000 bond, Judge Willard was like, no, 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 because Sophia wanted to either live at a motel or at her marital home.
1: Can you imagine? Honey, I'm home. Oh, my,
0: can't even imagine. But anyway, so the judge said, no, if you don't have anywhere to go, I'm not letting you out. So now Sophia comes up with an extra $5,000 to hit the $10,000 bond that's required. And she said to the judge, okay, I actually have somewhere to stay now. There's this woman I met last year at a party. (laughs) The judge was okay with that. If you can believe that. And I'm like, that's all it took.
1: Now, do you have any idea whether she was electronically surveilled?
0: So the plan was to have her in home confinement at this place with the friend she met at a party. Right. The party guy. Right. And it was a party girl.
1: Okay. Party girl. Just like you. Go ahead.
0: But, Kath, before Sophia could get her electronic home confinement put together, Judge Woolard actually signed an order keeping her in jail after Deputy Prosecutor Kelly Osler said she received new information, but the judge would not actually say what those specifics were. Now, two days later, the Columbia newspaper reported that Judge Woolard actually tripled Sophia's bond to $300,000, deeming her a severe flight risk. It turns out that the information the prosecution received that resulted in the judge signing that order to keep Sophia in jail. Was the fact that Sophia lied to the judge about her friend that she met at a party the year before.
1: The party friend.
0: Exactly. Uh And she told fellow inmates, otherwise known as.
1: Jailhouse snitches. Exactly. Right.
0: That she planned to leave town. So the woman who Sophia was supposed to live with told the judge that she'd actually never met Sophia. Oh, wow. This woman was a friend of the bail bondsman who provided the bond to get Sophia out. And the bail bondswoman went to this woman and said, hey, can you pretend like you know her? Oh, my gosh. I
1: didn't read that.
0: The friend was taking off like in October for a week or two, something like that. So she wouldn't even be around when Sophia was there. They found this out because when the district attorney's office went to talk to the party girl, she admitted, yeah, I don't actually know her. Because I'm sure she was afraid to lie. It's one thing to be like, yeah, yeah, tell her to put me down. It's another to have officials come in and totally. be like, uh, <laughs> am I going to get arrested if you do this? Exactly. <laughs> but in this one instance, I think you would be a fan of Judge Wollard because she actually said she didn't give too much credibility to the snitches.
1: I do appreciate that.
0: But the reason she raised the bail is because there was just so much deception going on that she wasn't willing to take that risk that Sophia
1: would dip. Oh, God, you had to say it. (laughs)
0: You started it. Episode two, you started it. Take responsibility. It's the first step.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: So, Kath, just one other quick thing on the bail. When Sophia's defense attorney, Therese Lavallee, tried to assure Judge Woolard that Sophia would not skip town because her father had put up his house for the bond, Judge Woolard said, no, she is totally self-centered, thinks of no one's concerns but her own, and there is no one she won't take advantage of. So wait, I have a question.
1: Yeah. What the heck? Yeah, no, that's rather scathing and unprofessional. On August 26, 2002, Sophia Johnson pleaded guilty to stealing $71,000 from her former employer and was sentenced to three years in prison. At this point, Brad was awarded custody of their four-month-old son. As we said previously, because Sophia did not waive time, prosecutors had dismissed her murder charges to give them time to investigate. On September 9, 2002, nine months after Marlene Johnson's murder, prosecutors refiled second degree murder charges against Sophia Johnson in the death of her mother in law. Almost four months later, prosecutors upgraded the charge to a felony first degree murder. The impact of this change would mean that. If convicted, Sophia Johnson would face 20 to 26 years in prison rather than 10 to 18 years on the prior charge. And we've talked about this before. Felony murder basically means you're committing a serious felony and somebody dies in the process. Right. So this would have been a death in the commission of a burglary. And it doesn't require the prosecution to prove premeditation. In January 2003, Sophia's brother, Sean Correa, finished serving his one-year sentence for the accessory after the fact charges. But a judge ruled that he would remain in custody as a material witness.
0: Kath, what I read is that as a material witness, you have to be paid for your time in jail. In Sean Correa's case, he was paid $10 a day.
1: Which is more than sufficient to support a family. Oh,
0: absolutely. (laughs)
1: Jury selection began on March 24th, 2003, 14 months after Marlene Johnson's murder. The jury of eight women and four men would not hear that Sophia Johnson was convicted of theft and was serving a three-year prison sentence unless she took the stand. In Washington and in most states, convictions for crimes of dishonesty or crimes of moral turpitude, mm. such as
0: <laughs> such as what you do on your a Saturday favorite, night. I was going to say, your
1: favorite kind of crimes. <laughs> Such as theft, fraud, and forgery could be introduced if the jury needs to weigh the truthfulness of the defendant's testimony. So, essentially, if somebody's convicted of a felony involving this kind of thing, for moral f- turpitude, exactly, their credibility can be impeached. However, just to bring it up at trial without her taking the stand would be too prejudicial. So, understandably, Sophia Johnson did not testify in her own defense. The key witness was expected to be Sophia's brother, Sean Correa, who was expected to testify that his sister was searching for $10,000, believed to be hidden in her in-law's house when the murder occurred. Bonjour. Parlez-vous français? Me neither. (laughs) Despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you.
0: As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered.
1: And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation.
0: They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app.
1: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today.
0: During opening statements, Sophia Johnson's defense attorney, Teresa Lavallee, urged jurors to pay attention to the lack of evidence that tied Sophia to the murder of her mother-in-law, Marlene Johnson. Now, here's the thing, Kath. As her daughter-in-law, Sophia, of course, is over there all the time, right? We heard that she was very close to Marlene. I'm sure she was over there with her husband,
1: Brad. Exactly.
0: And so, of course, her fingerprints are going to be all over the place, right? Right. And there was nothing that the police were able to find that specifically tied Sophia to the murder. There were right. no blood drops, you know,
1: anything like that. Right. Like fingerprints on the murder weapon.
0: Right. Defense attorney Lavalli also told the jurors that they could not speculate or use conjecture in their verdict. They needed to have proof. Lavali said that Sophia and Marlene were good friends and Sophia had no reason to kill her. Senior deputy prosecutor Tom Duffy agreed with Lavali's statement that Sophia and Marlene were friendly and said Marlene was very excited for her first grandchild. But the prosecutor added that Sophia and her husband, Brad, had financial difficulties. Kath, they'd been married for maybe four months, right, when this happened. Right. They were more than $100,000
1: in debt. Damn.
0: And of course, the prosecutor reiterated their belief that Sophia had taken her brother to Marlene's house because she was looking for $10,000 hidden somewhere there. Prosecutor Duffy went on to say that Marlene returned from the grocery store and was bludgeoned to death by Sophia after walking in the door unexpectedly. To bolster the prosecution's theory that the motive was greed, Prosecutor Duffy said that at Marlene's funeral, Sophia told a relative, quote, Well, tomorrow we get to go down and read Marlene's will. Susan Parker, who, as you'll recall, was Sean Correa's girlfriend and dropped her boyfriend and Sophia off at Marlene's home on the morning of the murder, was the first witness called to the stand. What made things interesting is that by the time of the trial, she was now
1: not his girlfriend. She was his wife. There's no bias there. None at all. <laughs> <laughs> None at all. So, Kath, what actually came out in Susan's testimony was that on the morning of the murder, she gets a call to drive Sophia and Sean to Marlene's house. Sophia tells her brother that she is going to give him money so that he could get divorced, but the money is in the pocket of a jacket that she left at her mother-in-law's house. So, what happens is the three of them drive to Marlene's house. Susan and her then-boyfriend, Correa, sit in the car. Sophia's gone for about 15 minutes and then comes back with nothing. And she says, you know what? I couldn't find the jacket. So they start to drive away. Sophia then says, you know, pull over. I got to think. They sit there on the side of the road for like 15 minutes. And then she says, you know what? Turn around. We have to shampoo the carpets and we're going to do it for money. And dear brother, I will give you $200 for doing such. So he says, okay. Okay. So Susan drives the two of them back to Marlene's house. She drops the two of them off and she leaves. On Wednesday, March 26, 2003, Sean Correa took the witness stand to testify against his sister and deny that he had any role in the murder. However, this time, his testimony was slightly different than what he had originally told investigators. And I would argue more embellished. Definitely more embellished. Correa testified that when he got back into the house with Sophia, she tells him, I'm really not here to clean a carpet. I'm here to look for money, but I want you to sit down on the staircase. Just sit tight. According to Correa, he hears a weird noise and goes downstairs to check and see what it was. When he gets to the bottom of the stairs by the basement, it was dark and he felt something wet drop on him. He wasn't sure what it was. And when he turned to his left... He saw someone on the floor of the basement with blood all over them. Correa further testified that he saw a person with a stocking over their head, wearing gloves, a plaid shirt, and standing over the body. He saw the person strike the body with a long weapon that he later learned were fireplace tongs. Correa told the jury that he freaked out. He yelled and started to run away, and then he heard his sister Sophia's voice yell something to him. He realized the person standing over the body was Sophia as she removed her mask.
0: That's way different than what he originally told police. Well,
1: it's embellished, as you said previously. Correa testified that his sister stole her mother-in-law's keys and then the two of them took her minivan. He then testified that he was crying and he didn't know what to do. So Sophia told him to keep quiet and took him to her house, made him change out of his blood-spattered clothes, and gave him a pair of her husband's pants. So Sophia, according to her brother, puts their bloody clothes in a bag and tells her brother to drive the minivan to a supermarket parking lot and abandon the car and dispose of the clothing on the way. Sophia gave him money to take a bus back to his apartment. Then, according to Correa's testimony, Sophia threatened him by telling him to keep quiet and reminded him that his young daughter did not live far away. So Correa had a little baby with his first wife. At the trial, prosecutors also played the recording of the phone tap where Sophia kept telling her brother not to talk on the phone that it might be bugged.
0: During cross-examination, defense attorney Therese Slavali suggested to the jury that Correa and his sister did not get along and raised questions about Correa's inconsistent statements since the murder. She didn't call them embellishment, Cath, but I think that's what she meant. I think so, too. Defense attorney Lavali pointed out that Sophia allowed Correa's estranged wife and daughter to move in with them briefly in the summer of 2001, but Correa said he was not upset about that. Lavali also asked why Correa told detectives at the time of the murder that he heard Marlene cry out, please, no, please stop, but had testified earlier that day that he only heard the victim make a weird noise. Lavalli said, what's the truth? Lavalle showed him a series of photos from the crime scene, and Correa started crying when he was shown a photo that included the blood-stained basement wall. As he was crying, defense attorney Lavalle continued to press him on his inconsistent statements, and Correa said there was a lot going on when he was arrested, and it was a really, really scary moment for him. On Friday, March 28, 2003, which was the fifth day of trial, Clark County Medical Examiner Dr. Dennis Wickham testified that Marlene Johnson had several injuries, including abrasions on her forehead, skull fractures, and fractured ribs. He also said that Marlene had internal injuries, but there was no one injury that really stood out and was something he would be able to call the actual cause of death. In closing arguments, Prosecutor Duffy painted Sophia Johnson as a money-hungry schemer so desperate for cash that she would rob and kill her own mother-in-law. And during her closing argument, Defense Attorney Lavallee tried to pin the crime on Sophia's younger brother, Sean Correa. As Kathy said earlier, Sophia Johnson did not testify. After closing arguments, the case went to the jury on Thursday, April
1: 3, 2003. The jury deliberations became controversial when one juror was sent home after four days of deliberations and an alternate juror was called in. The new jury of three women and nine men deliberated for 12 hours over two days before reaching a verdict. Juror number nine, who asked to be removed from the panel, told Judge Woolard that she was upset by the way the foreman was conducting deliberations. Judge Woolard dismissed her from the jury after the foreman said that juror number nine was crying and would curl up in a ball in the corner and start working on her embroidery. Hmm. The judge seated the alternate juror and instructed the jury to select a new foreman and deliberations began all over again. So, Kath, this is what happens when you have a juror, an alternate who's brought in in the middle of deliberations. Everything starts from scratch. I can't imagine anybody would have been happy with that. The next morning, juror number nine called defense attorney LaValle and Judge Woolard because she read a description of her alleged behavior in the newspaper and said the foreman had lied. Defense attorney LaValle asked Judge Woolard to declare a mistrial and said the judge had no grounds to dismiss the ousted juror. Judge Woolard denied the request and reminded LaValle that the woman had asked to be dismissed. Essentially, Kath, this juror was saying that she had a chronic pain situation, so she couldn't sit for long periods of time. So she would go and she would sit against the wall or she would stretch out or she would sit in a corner. And she did say that she had her embroidery with her, but she was listening. But she also got upset because a jury foreperson was saying, "Okay, everybody put your notes away. Now it's time to talk which way we're going to vote. And she was upset because she wanted to continue reviewing her notes. So it was more of a disagreement on how deliberations went, apparently. It sounds like more of a personality conflict, too. Definitely.
0: After two weeks of trial and 30 hours of deliberations, on Wednesday, April 9th, 2003, the jury found Sophia Johnson guilty of killing her mother-in-law, Marlene Johnson. Marlene's husband, real estate attorney Richard Johnson, Said he felt great relief when he heard the verdict, and it was an affirmation of his belief that Sophia was guilty. Mr. Johnson said he had been unable to work since his wife's murder. He also said he was worried about the potential for a not guilty verdict because the jury never saw the evidence of his former daughter in law's temper. Mr. Johnson said Sophia had a violent temper, was cruel to animals, and was a pathological liar. He said he and his wife had concerns when their son married Sophia but attempted to put that aside when they learned she was pregnant with their first grandchild. Two weeks after the verdict, Sophia Johnson's defense attorney filed a motion for a new trial, which began the process of appealing her murder conviction. In her brief, defense attorney Teresa Lavallee argued that Judge Woolard interfered with Sophia's constitutional right to a fair trial when she replaced a juror on the fourth day of deliberations. On June 9, 2003, two months after Sophia Johnson was convicted of killing her mother-in-law, Superior Court Judge Diane Woolard agreed with the recommendation of the prosecutor's office and sentenced Sophia to 43 years in prison, stating Sophia Johnson never needed to be on the streets again. Now, Kath, remember, initially you had talked about the fact that the sentencing range was 22 to 28 years. However, because Sophia pleaded guilty to felony embezzlement and served those three years in jail, the extra kick of pleading guilty to that prior felony actually upped the sentencing range to 32 to 43 years. Ouch. Now, even with good behavior, Sophia would only be able to knock at most four years off of her sentence. For sentencing, Judge Woolard rejected the defense motion for a new trial.
1: To add more drama to the case, it was reported that Sean Correa, Sophia's brother, and the prosecution's star witness was going to be deported. Both were born in the South American country of Guyana and moved to the United States when they were very little. After Sophia's sentencing, her brother was arrested by immigration officials and deportation proceedings were started. Judge Willard signed an order for Correa to be transferred to the custody of Clark County officials as a material witness while the appeal was pending. So he was transferred from federal custody to county custody, but... He did not challenge his deportation and was returned to Guyana.
0: Here's what's weird about that, Kath. As you mentioned, he was married to Susan Parker and they actually had two kids. So even though Correa was not an American citizen, he had ties to the community. He was married to a citizen. He had two small children here. And so deportation attorneys said he might actually have a shot of staying. But he didn't fight it at all. He no, left he his wife and two kids in Washington and noped out to Guyana. Noped out. Nope. Well, there's another swear word in there, but I'm not saying it for right, this group. Exactly. That was never explained, and right. I just thought it was strange.
1: I agree with you 100%. On January 25th, 2005, three years after Marlene Johnson's murder, the Court of Appeals of Washington overturned Sophia Johnson's conviction and ordered a new trial. The justices cited the trial court's violation of Sophia's constitutional rights when it removed juror number nine from the jury. The bailiff also had inappropriate communications with the jury, which in and of itself were enough to overturn the verdict. So Kath, here's what happened. The bailiffs are allowed to have basic conversations with the jury like, good morning, you can go in the room, or have you reached a verdict? Really, really basic stuff. If a juror comes to a bailiff and has a conversation about something or tries to talk to the bailiff, they're supposed to say, I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to talk to you. But apparently, in this situation, the bailiff was telling the jurors, you all have to come to a unanimous verdict. Or, like on the first day, for example, the jury told the bailiff that they couldn't reach a decision. And when the bailiff communicated this to the judge, the judge says, not on day one. So the bailiff went back to the jury and said, you guys have to keep going. You have to reach a unanimous decision.
0: So basically, he was interfering with jury deliberations. She,
1: yeah. At some point, when the defense is making their motion for a new trial, They cross-examine the bailiff. The bailiff basically takes the stand and has to testify about what happened. And she admits everything. And she's like, yeah, I told them, no, you have to have a unanimous verdict. And each of my communications, I discussed with the judge. Well, the defense attorney at this point is really freaking upset because the judge has never revealed to the lawyers these communications that were happening with the bailiff and the jurors. And it appeared that the bailiff was sort of the go-between between the judge and the jurors. And that's not appropriate. Right. So Juror number 9 essentially supported the defense theory that Juror number 9 was bounced because she was the holdout. So that's what the court was critical of the judge. Like, you can't bounce somebody just because they're making deliberations difficult. Right. You're entitled to be a holdout. So, Kathy,
0: here's the other interesting thing about the Court of Appeals opinion. Not only did they remand the case and say, you need to give Sophia Johnson a new trial, they also said Judge Diane Woolard was not allowed to be the judge. That's a big deal. So it's interesting, Kathy, because the next year, so this is after this has already happened. But the next year, there was an article that came out in The Columbian by Stephanie Rice, who's covered a lot of this. The headline of it was Judge Diane Woolard's controversial decisions have left attorneys and appellate judges alike shaking their heads and turning elsewhere for justice. So The Columbian did this article about the nine superior court justices in Clark County. This is where the original trial was held and they looked at 120 requests for a new judge that had been filed in the past three years in Superior Court for civil, criminal, and divorce cases, all three. Now, remember, there's nine Superior Court judges 42% of the requests were for Diane Woolard.
1: That's crazy.
0: And this was twice as many as any other judge.
1: Here's the deal, Kath. Like, basically, you have a certain amount of time when you're assigned to a judge to bounce them for cause. Like, so you just file a sheet of paper and you say, I think she's going to be biased. In California, it's practically automatic. They're very rarely challenged. And you're just assigned to a new judge. I am assuming that they have something similar in Washington.
0: She didn't retire until I believe it was only a few years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. There was nothing they could do to remove her short of a recall election or bouncing her out at the next election.
1: On retrial, the prosecution had a big problem. Their key witness was deported two years prior. However, journalist Stephanie Rice with The Columbian wrote on September 27, 2005, that Sean Correa had returned to Washington in anticipation of his sister's retrial. Senior Deputy Prosecutor Mike Kinney said that Correa was checking in daily with phone calls to sheriff's detectives. But one month before the retrial, Correa called Kinney's legal assistant and said he had gone into hiding. Efforts to trace his call were unsuccessful. Sophia Johnson's retrial began on October 31, 2005. Two days into the trial, a letter addressed to Prosecutor Mike Kinney from Sean Correa was faxed to the Colombian newspaper. In the letter, Correa made it clear that he would not be a witness against his sister. The letter, which was notarized in New York and dated almost two months prior, said, This letter is to notify all parties that I, as a human being, have had my rights violated in every sense that can be imagined. I wish to make note that I have obtained evidence that can possibly put others in the crime. I have brought this to the attention of the detectives in the case, and nothing has been done with it. With this being the case, I refuse to take part in this charade anymore End quote."
0: "Now to add insult to injury, the judge denied the request to have the video of Correa's previous trial testimony shown to the jury, because it violated Sophia Johnson's Sixth Amendment right to confront her accuser. Now, unlike the first trial, Sophia Johnson took the stand and gave a different version of events. Now, remember previously, Sophia had insisted that she had not been in Marlene's house until she went with her then-husband, Brad, after Marlene failed to show up at Sophia's house for lunch. At the retrial, Sophia testified that she was in Marlene Johnson's house the day her mother-in-law was killed, but she said she did not witness the crime. Sophia testified that she went to the house with her husband and her brother because they planned to scare Marlene Johnson enough to divorce Brad's father. Sophia testified that Brad knew his mother was upset because his father was drinking again. She also testified that Brad was mad because his father was also gambling. In fact, Sophia said Brad was furious. The night prior to the murder, Sophia and Brad had been at his parents' house, and on the drive home, she and Brad came up with a plan to help his mother. They decided they would have someone pose as a debt collector for a loan shark who had given loans to Marlene's husband for gambling money. They were hoping to scare Marlene enough to leave her husband. According to Sophia, Brad suggested that she call her brother Sean Correa for help. Sophia testified that on the day of the murder, she went to her mother-in-law's house with her brother in a car driven by her brother's then-girlfriend, Susan Parker. Sophia and her brother got out of the car, and Susan drove off. They waited for Brad to come to the house so he could let them in. Marlene was not there— So she and Brad left, but said that her brother stayed. Sophia testified that later that day, she and Brad went back to the house and discovered Marlene's body.
1: On cross-examination, Prosecutor Kinney asked Sophia about Brad's relationship with Correa, and Sophia said it was strained. He also asked if it made sense that Correa posed as the gambling creditor when Marlene had already met him. Sophia testified that it was never her understanding that her mother-in-law was going to be hurt. She said when she initially spoke to investigators, she followed her husband's lead after he did not tell them about their plan to scare his mother. Also on retrial, the defense called a forensic expert, Mr. K. Sweeney, who owns a private forensic lab in Kirkland, Washington. But, Cap, this guy has good credentials. I believe that he had been employed by a couple of the counties around the area in the past and now was operating his own lab and offering his services as an expert witness. So, Mr. Sweeney testified based on crime scene photos that showed Marlene's body as well as graze marks left on the wall. Now, Cap, these were graze marks left by the fireplace tongs moving in a downward arc. So Mr. Sweeney testified that based on all the evidence he sees in these photographs, the attacker had to have been at least 5 feet 10 inches tall and left-handed. Sophia was 5 feet 4 and right-handed. But here's a side note. I was actually interested in looking up information about Mr. Sweeney, and I found an article. That was a 2014 article by a reporter named Sarah Jean Green of the Seattle Times. And she talked about how in this one particular case, the judge placed tight restrictions on Mr. Sweeney involving his testimony in a 2006 murder. I guess the senior prosecutor in that case got affidavits from police officers to support the position that Mr. Sweeney had a history of failing to comply with court orders, altering evidence and delaying the return of evidence. And in this article, it gave examples of things he had done. I guess in one of the cases, he made the gun inoperable. In one of the cases, he sawed through a bullet, and he also scored a bullet with his scalpel. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, so I guess he was apparently known by prosecutors and police officers as somebody who took poetic license with the evidence. Which is why some defense counsel would want him to be there. Exactly. So before closing arguments the following day, Brad Johnson testified as to his relationship with Sophia's brother, Sean Correa. He said it was non-existent at the time of the murder, and he vehemently denied his ex-wife's version of events.
0: During closing arguments, prosecutor Mike Kinney said Sophia Johnson's motive for killing her mother-in-law, Marlene Johnson, was simply a case of greed. Sophia first stole from her employer, and when she ran out of that money, she went to Marlene's house looking for more. When Marlene came home unexpectedly, Sophia killed her to cover up what she was doing. He told the jury that this young lady wants and needs and craves money. He also told the jury that Sophia's story about Correa being hired to scare Marlene Johnson in her own home did not make sense. Quote, you don't scare homeowners by bludgeoning them to death. This wasn't a scare. It was an ambush. End quote. Defense attorney Therese Lavalle said during her closing argument that Correa was left alone in the house by Brad and Sophia Johnson on the day Marlene Johnson died. Quote, what happened after that might remain a mystery forever. End quote. Defense attorney Lavalle also reminded the jury that the defense does not have to prove what happened. That burden is on the prosecutor. The five-woman, seven-man jury began deliberations on Tuesday, November 8, 2005. Two days later, after deliberating for 10 hours, the jury came back with a verdict. Not guilty. Immediately following Sophia Johnson's acquittal, she was actually taken into custody, Kath, in the courtroom by immigration officials and led away in handcuffs to begin deportation proceedings. Because Sophia never became a U.S. citizen, she was subject to deportation for her felony conviction for embezzlement.
1: Following the verdict, Marlene's husband Richard Johnson was visibly shaken. He told reporters that he had no faith in our system of justice. Brad Johnson, who had remained quiet throughout both trials, declined to comment.
0: Thank you so much for listening. We really enjoy all of the stories, doing the research, finding out Mm -hmm. all the details. And several of our listeners, of course, have sent us suggestions. Yes, we love that. We do. We absolutely love it. If you have any that you're interested in,
1: it happened in your hometown, you've heard of it. Let us know. And if you're not following us, we are at Killer Destinations Podcast on Instagram and Facebook.